0: When you're setting up or doing a transaction and kind of setting up that initial phase, if you don't do that right, it leads to issues down the line. So you mm-hmm. kind of have to, but you also have to know what those issues could be, kind of seeing them not go well and blow up, how, like what things you need to be careful of in different industries.
1: From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast.
2: Welcome to part one in the two-part law and healthcare series. In this episode, we're going to experience a day in the life, hour by hour, of Ali Shalom, an associate and business lawyer at Foley & Lardner LLP. So you can decide if this is a career that's right for you. Allie works with healthcare providers to make sure they comply with the law.
1: Which means she spends a lot of her time reading up on local, state, and federal laws, and just as much time creating agreements and making sure her clients are adhering to these ever changing laws. Let's get right into the day. So today we're following a Monday morning this episode, and the start of this day began at 7 a.m. with a phone call. This was a call with fellow members from the Anti-Defamation League to follow up on plans for a future meeting regarding promotional events.
2: On the agenda for the rest of this day was contracting for a new project, reviewing a physician agreement, interviewing counsel from an international law firm, forming a new entity for a physician, and so much more. Let's meet Allie and learn more about what she does.
0: My name is Ali Shalom. I'm a second-year associate at Foley and Lardner in our healthcare group, which is under the business law department, and it's a international law firm. So the way the firm is structured, I think it's similar to a lot of other big firms. We have an intellectual property group, you have litigation, which handles going to court and kind of everything up to, and then the business law department where healthcare sits. And that Handles transactional work. There are a lot of different divisions under it, but our healthcare group does kind of a mix of things. We do regulatory work, so Medicare, Medicaid billing, dealing with compliance issues, um, and compliance is kind of goes into that regulatory bucket, just making sure that all of the hospital systems or major companies are following the rules so that they don't get in trouble. Because in the healthcare space, it's highly highly regulated and there are a lot of opportunities to misstep without even knowing. We also do investigations, so both internal where you think something might have happened and you want to figure out what that is and decide if you need to report to the government or the government decides that you did something bad and wants to look into it. And the last third piece is just transactional work that happens to involve healthcare companies because there are so many specific regulations you want to make sure it's everything's kind of in place and Looks OK before moving ahead. Our group pretty much only does provider side works. So we don't really work with patients and individuals. It's more system based. So I've been doing work for some medical device companies, a lot of large hospital systems, urgent care centers, home, a lot of home health agencies, uh, nursing homes. So just a lot of anyone who is providing healthcare services basically falls into that bucket.
2: So what is your favorite bucket?
0: I'm really still figuring that out right now. I like the interplay of all of of it because when you're setting up or doing a transaction and kind of setting up that initial phase, if you don't do that right, it leads to issues down the line. So you Mm -hmm. kind of have to – but you also have to know what those issues could be, kind of seeing them not go well and blow up, like what things you need to be careful of in different industries. So right now I'm trying to kind of – learn it all. And some of it just depends who you like to work with and who you mesh well with.
2: And uh, you had a call for with the Anti-Defamation League. Can you tell us about that call, but then also why you joined that league?
0: Sure. So it's, it's a nonprofit that has kind of a dual mission. Um, it's to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure uh, fair justice and treatment for all. So... Uh, My family's been involved in the organization, and when I was in law school, I was really interested in their young leadership program, which is called Glass Leadership Institute. I thought it would just be a great way to have some kind of community involvement outside of school and work, and that was also around the time the election was happening, so I wanted to feel like I was doing something and making a difference. And this was just an awesome organization. I loved the program and joined the associate board. So this specific call was for the committee that I'm on. I'm on the Community Outreach and Engagement Committee, and we were working with the Development Committee just to come up with new marketing ideas to get young leadership in the community involved and aware of what we do in our mission.
2: So you get to work at uh, 7.55 a.m., um, is this a normal time for you to walk in?
0: The call was at eight and okay. I didn't want to be in transit for it. So gotcha. yeah, it, it also depends who I'm working with. Um, I've been doing more work with the California team recently, so it's not critical that I'm there before they're even awake, but there are some people in the Boston office too specifically who often are starting seven fifteen, seven thirty. So if I'm working with them, it's nice to, to arrive similar timing.
1: So your first work activity after the ADL call, you entered your time from the previous day. Mm-hmm.
0: You bill in six minute increments. Yes. <laughs> How do you keep track of that? So often, what I'll do is you can enter your start and stop time, and then that adds up. There's a program that we use to okay. to track all of it. So you enter like the client name their ID, the map, the specific matter you're working on for them, the time, and then what you did. You have to write a description. So, How I, specific
1: do you have to get with that?
0: Different clients have their own guidelines. So some people like you to be really vague. It also depends on the billing partner who's going to be going through and editing all of these. Um, so you just kind of have to get a feel. But you want to show that you did something substantive Mm -hmm. and that it's different than other time you might have billed, but you also don't need to give them like a full, full breakdown of everything you did. But is there any time that you would
1: enter your time and the billing partner was like, no, we don't need to to bill somebody for this? Like, when is it that it would be billed?
0: So pretty much all of my time is going to be billed. The partners are going to have – they have as much discretion really as they want. So Mm. sometimes we'll do flat fee structures. So we're not billing – I mean you still enter your time like you're billing by the hour basically. But they're only paying a a certain amount. So that's really more to track how close or how on target um, the estimate was going forward. They can better kind of guess and and be accurate. Uh, For – hourly rates in general sometimes depending on the market or the deal they'll only bill 20% of your time or they'll give discounts in certain ways so when you're looking at your effectiveness rate and how much of your time was billed it's it can be a little bit deceptive because there might just be something going on with the client and it's not necessarily that your full time wasn't valuable
2: another question effectiveness rate mm-hmm. you mentioned that what is that and is that a number that you always have in your head or no
0: no, I mean, they're very, con- I'm always aware of kind of my annualization rate, which is how much time I, it, looks like, it looks like I'll be billing at the end of our year. Because we have f- different targets that you have to meet. There's the minimum hours that you have to bill and then different thresholds for bonus eligibility at my firm. Some places have different models, mm. but that, that's ours.
2: Interesting.
0: So I'm much more concerned with that. The effectiveness rate is the ratio of how much of your time you're entering versus what's being passed on to the client. So if you had a really bad one, it's something that you need to look into. But for me, because of the way the discounting structure and fixed fee rates and, and also retainer stuff, it's it's not quite as meaningful.
2: Got it. And then are there any other uh, rates, I guess, that you've got to keep track of?
0: At this stage, not a ton, unless someone specifically asks when they're um, going after a new business and putting together proposals. Sometimes, like if they're putting me on as the junior person, they'll want to see what all of my like, published rate would be or my floor rate. Those those different types of things. But I look it up almost every time.
2: Next on the agenda, Allie coordinated with her assistant about a visit to New York for a healthcare conference. Her assistant supports her and three of the firm's partners. So tell us about this book that you are uh, co-authoring or the chapter in the book.
0: Yeah. So this, I think this started as more of a newsletter update for the American Health Lawyers Association. It seemed to go well. And I, my understanding is from there, they decided to turn it into more of a book. So like a 2019 update. So one of the partners I, I work with one of her specialties is managed care and value-based payment systems. So this chapter is focusing on innovations in that field. And this was one of those times I was like, I want to learn more about what this is, and this would be such a great way to kind of dive in and and have to learn all of it. So,
2: can you unpack that a little bit and explain what value-based payment is all? Yeah. So about? there <laughs> there's,
0: there are two sorts of payment methodologies in healthcare, one is what you probably traditionally think of, it's fee for service. So you you go in, you get your flu shot, you pay for that specific shot, that service and you leave. Value-based payments structure it a little bit differently. They look at it as more of a packaged system. So a good example would be more like a knee replacement. So rather than paying for each individual component of the treatment, you pay for it as a package rate. Right? So it it would incentivize you to be more careful, not necessarily mess, mess up, because if you don't have complications, if you don't need to use all these excessive, unnecessary services, it can streamline and th- then you might get more value and more leftover money. Whereas the other system for that knee replacement, they might say, why don't we tack on this? Because you're being paid by the exact service and item. Mm-hmm. So that's the general philosophy to sort of streamline services, not give people unnecessary or encourage unnecessary treatment. But at the same time, you also are trying to keep people more overall healthy because it's, it's much cheaper to – keep someone healthy than to deal with them at the very end when you're going to the emergency room for a heart attack if you could have helped do more preventative work up front.
1: 10am and Allie got an email from a senior associate slash junior partner about a new project on the issue of contracting.
0: When a manufacturer is entering into a contract with another party, you can have certain, you can waive certain liabilities. So for example, if you if the person that you're sold to is sued by a customer for an issue with the product how much of that's going back to the manufacturer so i was looking at specifically what they they can limit and what they're not allowed to for public policy reasons mm-hmm. so new york specifically allows you to disclaim certain types of negligence so mistakes that happen up until a certain point when it's just so bad that they don't want to shield you from that anymore. And this company was saying, if we even get one of those suits, it's going to put us out of business. So there's no incentive for people like us to go into the marketplace if one mistake puts us out of business. But the public policy perspective is, and where the courts ultimately kind of come out, are if you did something that bad that you really should have known, it was going to like cause this big of a problem and it, it could have been prevented if you were careful. You shouldn't be able to, to cut off your liability there.
1: So you started research on this. Can you talk about just like your process when you're researching? Where do you start? How is it notated and Does it
2: and start presented? with Google?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, oft, <laughs> often it does because this wasn't something that I was particularly familiar with beyond the backgrounds that I just kind of gave you guys. That's mm. that's what I knew. Um, she was like, I think I read this case in law school. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was her gut instinct. And she was totally right. But how do I go and then prove it and back it up? Um, and we wanted to try to find an exception or any wiggle room for the client to to help. But ultimately, I, I didn't really find any. Uh, so Googling some of the terms just to really get familiar with the area and also get a sense of what search terms you're trying to pull because a lot of these terms – are going to be used in very specific ways in cases. So if you're not searching for the right things, you're not going to pull the right material. So from there, there are a bunch of legal databases um, that store and publish all the cases. So, for example, like Westlaw and um, LexisNexis are two ones that you're trained on in law school. They actually give you free memberships when you're in law school, so you can get good at them. (laughs) And also, in theory, have a preference. Um, And if you get really good at one, they want you... To encourage your firm to use that one mm. is kind of the marketing that happens when you're in school. Uh, so I I went on one of those and I was searching just kind of for case law at that point. Because The way those work is they charge you per search. So you don't want to start <laughs> with very little knowledge at that point because you're not going to have effective searching. Wow. So that could be a time <laughs> that a partner might decide we don't want to charge the client for your 30 ridiculous searches. Right. <laughs>
2: Do you have any specific techniques or pointers that you use uh, when searching?
0: I find it's better to start with a broader search because then you can narrow it. There's like a way to do that. So search within your own search. So that doesn't generate extra clicks. But that's all sort of stuff that you're going to learn in school in your research classes.
2: 11 a.m. rolled around and Allie made two phone calls, one to a client of hers and another to state regulators to ask questions about relicensing. The client she called was a large home health agency that was going through a restructuring for tax purposes.
0: So we are helping with that. And part of the process, especially in the health industry, is you're heavily licensed. So how do you tell the appropriate people? that this change is happening and which of them do you even have to tell do you have to apply for new licenses or medicaid and or in medicare enrollments what even constitutes change because these are all the same people it's just restructuring And this often will come up with different types of like indirect sales where you're selling stock. So that's not necessarily a completely new owner. Some of them are staying the same. So we did a ton of research over the summer, about five or six of the associates in all of the states on the the Medicaid and licensure pieces for home health agencies.
1: What kind of licenses do those agencies need? And it wouldn't be the same licenses that like hospitals would need, right? Or do they sometimes overlap?
0: So it, de- it depends. Often home health agencies have their own home health agency license that they have to get. It could be called a home care organization license. That's mm-hmm. about the extent of the variety kind of playing around with those terms um so some of it you have to figure out what the license is that's your starting point what the name of it is and who regulates it there's usually a department of health it could be public health and environment and finding that in the state um and seeing what their their process is
2: you guys discussed applications what are these applications
0: so some of the regulators require that you they're Some of them require that you just submit a completely new application and get a brand new license. Okay. So we're at that stage now where we're filling, we're helping the client fill those out. So I'm basically sent her all the materials and outlined the process for her. And then we go over questions that she has about them. Some of the ones that we're doing, they're just change of control applications. So the state basically says, we have a lot of details on you. We already know your operating hours. We know your business. Just tell us about the new what's new so those ones aren't as as big of a lift and some of it was how duplicative is some of this does the same person really need to get that background check again this year or did they just get it and we're okay now so some states really do make you redo absolutely everything others don't it just kind of depends on the system
1: and how long will it take to become official
0: I think the longest application processing time is about three months, if everything goes smoothly. So it it really depends. I think in this specific instance, it was a Medicaid enrollment in, I think it was in Georgia. So they have a provider enrollment hotline that you can call, and their general enrollment representatives there who know about not specifically the change of ownership stuff, but about the enrollment process more generally.
2: Allie's able to help her clients across the country because Foley and Lardner have partners that are licensed in all different states. So she simply works under their license, which is a common practice at large law firms like this.
0: And this isn't necessarily work where you have to where you're submitting your your bar number or anything that you have to be licensed in that state. Mm-hmm. It's helpful, especially if you're giving advice. Sometimes it's even necessary. But I mean this is all being overseen by
2: multiple partners. So 12 p.m., you have a uh, telemedicine team call. What is that?
0: Who makes up that team?
2: And are you getting hungry yet? A lot of people take lunch noon.
0: Uh, yeah, so I usually eat at my desk, so okay. I just kind of grabbed something and, and ate during this call. So our telemedicine <laughs> industry team Um, is led by a partner who's based in the Tampa office. But we have people who kind of do this work throughout the country. So it's kind of an opportunity for us to all get together and discuss initiatives and work that we're doing and be consistent with advice but also bounce ideas off each other. So to back up a little bit, telemedicine is basically any time that you're providing healthcare services through the use of technology – the most kind of – the two most classic examples would be um, remote patient monitoring. So if you leave the hospital and you're wearing a heart monitor, that data is getting collected and transmitted, sometimes immediately, sometimes it's stored, collected, and then forwarded um, to a provider who's then going to be reading that information and collecting it. So rather than you having to go in and get checked a million times, some of that can be done from more of a distance. So
1: 1245, you're following up with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And what was that call
0: like? Yeah, so we had sent in an inquiry back in. Well, first, I made a few calls, wasn't really getting a clear answer. So then we sent in an official like inquiry letter asking about this space between home health agencies hospice care and palliative care. So in Massachusetts, palliative care, we weren't sure if it was regulated or not, and the client was interested in this space. Home health, there is no specific Massachusetts state license that you have to get through the Department of Public Health. However, if you're doing hospice care, that's home-based, so still kind of that home piece, that is regulated. The difference is you have to elect to be on – there are a handful of differences, but hospice is kind of end-of-life end of, end of life care, and there are a bunch of qualifications to meet that specific definition. But mm-hmm. it's, it's generally an estimated six-ish months left to live. Palliative care falls between the two and can be used in both instances, so it's more – you're not necessarily getting better or worse. It can just be kind of pain management, post-surgery – chronic conditions um if you're on dialysis for a really long time things like that it's it's the care that's surrounding that to make you feel better but it's, it's not always at the hospice level so we were trying to find out what happens at that intersection
1: gotcha and, and then we you,
0: are still waiting I was to say, does that happen a lot where you
1: you try and reach out about questions you have and it takes a long time to what happens then
0: I keep reaching out. Yeah, you just wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually the partner might get reinvolved. We we had a call with part of their team, and then they were passing it on to someone else. So mm. we're bugging them to bug the other team to to gotcha. get us an answer. So so
2: how often do you follow up?
0: Like once every other week at this point.
1: 1 p.m., Allie had her eyes on a physician's agreement, reviewing it to make sure the physicians at a specific hospital are compliant with state and federal laws. Since last summer, a team of four associates, including herself, looked over a thousand agreements to look for specific red flags.
0: The two big federal ones are going to be Stark and the federal anti-kickback statute. So the anti-kickback statute basically prohibits you being employed by someone and then sending referrals there and being paid for that. Because you want to encourage patient choice and freedom and you don't want to be sending people for services that they don't need. They want it to really be a true referral if that's required, but you, you can't generate that that kickback for yourself. That's causes a lot of issues. Mm. Stark is specifically a physician anti-kickback rule. It's only going to impact physicians, not all providers in that space.
1: How do you keep up with all of the changes is there like just like a somewhere you just check daily or like how, that seems like a lot to keep track of
0: so you can't really completely, completely keep yeah. up and some of that is even just within the healthcare space within the kind of three buckets that we deal with we have partners who really specialize in each one of those and eventually after you get experience in all of them, you you would end up specializing. So, And those three buckets are? Sort of the regulatory compliance, okay. transactional, gotcha. mergers, acquisitions, um, and then the investigations piece. So we have specialists in kind of all of those areas. It's nice to have those sorts of resources. I get a lot of daily email blasts. There are tons of listservs you can be on. 3 p.m. hit and
1: Allie interviewed counsel from an international law firm. The reason she had to hire someone internationally was because a hospital Allie was working with was looking into providing telemedicine services internationally. So she needed a lawyer on the case who's an expert on the laws of telemedicine in
0: that country. But in telemedicine, there there are a lot of licensure issues. So when you here in New York, if you go see your doctor, you're a New York resident, you see your New York licensed physician. That You see them in person, you establish that physician-patient relationship, that's great. That's all fine. If you're a New York resident and you go out of state and you're in New Jersey and you see a doctor there, again, fine. But what if you're a New Jersey resident in New Jersey trying to see and talk with a physician over the phone or via video conference? That line starts to get blurry because mm. they're treating someone not in a state that they're not licensed in.
1: So that's a lot
0: of the stuff that we do. And there are a lot of other sorts of considerations there. And some states make it easier than others. Some states have more reciprocity. Others just aren't there yet at all. So they're looking to do this outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. So we we really need that that local support.
2: At 345, Ali took a coffee break, but was right back to work at 4, working with a paralegal to form a new entity for a physician. The reason they had to create a new entity was to limit the personal liability and the tax liability for that physician who works in a large hospital. So there
0: are a bunch of steps, and the paralegals do this sort of thing regularly. But when it's a a physician entity, it becomes a professional corporation sometimes. You have to make that decision, and there are extra distinctions. And and this ended up being an extra—there's a— A form that you have to send to the Board of Registration of Medicine to have them certify that their license is in good standing and they actually are a doctor to (laughs) form a professional corporation because if you're not a professional, then why are you – you can't form that and say you are.
1: Allie had an eye doctor appointment at 6 p.m. and went home after by 7 p.m. She had dinner and started tailoring a template compliance program. This was for a physician practice sent to her, but it was based off of compliance guidelines from the Office of the Inspector General for individual and small group physician practices.
0: Based on the federal sentencing guidelines, which basically says if you... If you mess up like how bad it is and how and what the subsequent penalties should be, there's kind of a whole range that you could fall in depending on like what mistake or intentional misstep you took. And there are a lot of mitigating factors and things you can do to show that you tried and to make it better. So for a hospital system and physician groups, there are a variety or any, really anything in the medical space. The Office of Inspector General has published these guidelines of how to make an effective compliance program. So your compliance program is supposed to catch all of these sorts of mistakes. So you need a variety of mechanisms to make sure both employees and patients are are able to communicate those sorts of issues they're having.
2: So you just experienced a day in the life of a two-year associate, but how does one actually become an associate at a law firm? In part two of the Law and Healthcare series, join us as we go through Ali Shalom's career journey and experiences leading up to where she is today. Ali did her due diligence in college with tons of internships in the world of politics and law. Let's learn how she did it so you can too. Stay tuned. At Experience A Day In The Life, we're building an online library of content all focused on a diddle or a day in the life of different jobs and professions across the world in all different industries. So if you want to share your a diddle, you can do so at xadiddle.com slash share dash my dash a diddle. That's xaditl.com slash share dash my dash a d i t l.
1: Thanks for listening. Head over to xadiddle.com. That's xaditl.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Poe and Matt with one T Poe.
2: If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.